0: Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series.
1: Hey, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We have been tracking through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're nearing the end. In fact, next week we, in theory, finish up. And if you remember from before our practice that we just finished the teaching for, the end of the Sermon on the Mount is really fascinating. Jesus is smart. Would you agree with that? And a lot of us don't. Realize just how brilliant he was at every level. And he ends the sermon not with a touching story to bring you to tears, or with a kind of you know, pep talk, Pentecostal rally, like yes, or whatever, and not with a practical application in acronym or alliteration form, A1, A2, A, none of that. He ends with three warnings. And warning number one was about two, hadas is the word in Greek, and it can be translated ways or roads or paths of life that lead to two very different destinations. And one is a broad hadas or way or road or path that a ton of people are on. And it's basically kind of just live however you want. And the other is a narrow way. It's a very specific way to be human based on Jesus' teachings that we just read in the Sermon on the Mount. So that was warning number one. And now we're on to warning number two. Let's read it. Matthew chapter seven. Take a look at verse 15. Watch out. For false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Answer No. no. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers." The modern world is a terribly confusing place to call home. Is that just me? Yes, three of us. There's all sorts of chatter right now about the good and bad of globalization. On the upside, third wave coffee, come on, cheap travel, diversity tolerance, and I get to eat a banana every single morning for breakfast, 365 days a year. Just in case you notice, not a lot of banana trees in Oregon, especially in January. But on the other side, you have the refugee crisis, the widening gap between rich and poor, the clash of East-West, religion, ideology, urbanization, the rising cost of living, the rise of jihad. We, for the most part, love this idea of a multicultural society, but even if you're all for it on the ground, reality is a bit more tricky. Because different cultures come with different worldviews, and not just the West versus the East or the Global South, or the intersectional triad. We hear about a lot of, you know, gender and ethnicity and sexuality, white versus black versus brown, or male versus female, or straight versus LGBTQ. I would argue that reality is far more complex You have urban versus suburban versus rural. You have West Coast, best coast, versus the Midwest, versus the South, versus the East. You have educated versus uneducated. You have progressive versus conservative, versus all of us that are just confused right now. You have class, which nobody is talking about at a political level, even though it's the issue behind all of the other issues. Lots of different cultures with lots of different worldviews. And we love that we have the, quote, freedom to pick and choose our own worldview. That parents now revel in the, you know, they say to their children, I would never tell you what to believe. That's so old-fashioned. And that sounds great, but unless if you're the next Aristotle, most of us can't come up with a worldview that is coherent, much less compelling by the time we meet puberty, which is just about when you really need one. For that, we need luminaries or thought leaders who are older and wiser, people with access to the vast reservoir of ancient wisdom passed down over millennia from generation to generation about what is and isn't the good life, what is and isn't human flourishing. Now, in Jesus' first century Jewish world, you called people like that prophets. A prophet was somebody who spoke on behalf of God. A prophet was a signpost to a life well lived. In the modern world, we might not call them prophets. We might call them professors or philosophers or psychologists or once in a while pastors or podcasters or best-selling authors or Nobel Peace Prize winners. And we might say they speak on behalf of reality or science or how life is but all of them are exactly the same, a signpost. And we need these kinds of luminaries to point the way to the good life, but there is a problem, especially we're well aware of this in a globalized world. These luminaries don't all point in the same direction. And contrary to the overused cliche, all paths do not lead up the same mountain. Different paths lead to different destinations. Not all philosophies lead to the good life. Not all ways of being human lead to human flourishing. Hence, Jesus' warning. Now, let's work back through Jesus' teaching line by line. Take a look again at verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. Now, the Greek here has a nice ring to it. apo tone Can you say that? Come on, you know you have it in you. Come on, that was, all right, that was not bad at all. Now, prosakahete is, uh, it can be translated beware or watch out or be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for who? Well, that nasty fellow, the pseudo prophetone. Now, that's from two Greek words, pseudo, where we get the word pseudo, and the word for prophet. Pseudo prophets. Kind of, but not really prophets. Not all wrong, but not all right prophets. People who claim to be speaking for God, but in actuality aren't. Now, in church culture, unless if you come out of the Pentecostal tradition or a little bit of the Charismatic tradition, We don't even call them prophets anymore. We're more likely to call them pastors or podcasters or bloggers or writers or something like that. But that's the same idea here. Now, this warning to beware is used six times in the Gospel of Matthew. This is two of six. And each time, listen to this, it is for some kind of a spiritual leader. Chapter six, verse one, it's for the hypocrites, Jesus' favorite name for the Pharisees, a sect inside first century Judaism. Here in seven one, of false prophets. In 10-1 of the religious leaders that drag followers of Jesus into court on trial for apprenticeship to Jesus. And then in chapter 16, it's used three times for the leaven that was code for the teaching of the Pharisees. So my point is, this warning Right here in seven, is a part of a much larger theme in Matthew, which in turn is a part of a much larger theme in the library of Scripture as a whole. For example, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, does a full on miracle, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, Let us follow other gods, gods you have not even known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. Or I think of Jeremiah. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them, or appointed them, or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own mind. In the New Testament, you have the warnings from Jesus, and then from almost every single one of the New Testament writers. Paul to Timothy comes to mind, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. How great is that word picture? It's like you have an itch in your ear, you're like, oh, I really want to hear this. I really want to hear that. I really want so-and-so to justify my desire to do this, that, or the other. And so you, can anybody scratch this itch? And the answer is yes, a lot of people. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, but you keep your head in all situations. Here's one from Peter, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly induce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many, not a few, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Man, does that ring true right now. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. This is Peter writing about the future, not the past, saying false prophets are not an issue for back in the day, but for here and for now. Here's one from John. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because here it is again, many False prophets have gone out into the world. On and on the New Testament goes. Every single writer. Skip to that one from the Revelator, which, by the way, is like the best alias ever. This is apocalyptic imagery. It's like, comic book style Hebrew literature, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's the closest thing you ever get in all of the New Testament to Dante's idea of hell. And who's it for? The false prophet. How are we doing out here tonight? Welcome. Great to be with all of you in our progressive, open-minded, tolerant city, unless if you're a false prophet, burning sulfur for you. (laughs) My point is, this warning from Jesus isn't a one-off aside. It is a major theme in Jesus, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the kingdom of God. I say that because it's a theme that very few of us touch on at all today with the exception of Christian fundamentalists who talk about it constantly and think that pretty much everybody is a false prophet but them. More on that later. Most of us avoid the topic like the plague. We'll talk more about that too. But for Jesus and the luminaries of the kingdom, false prophets are something that we are to beware of. Watch out, hire a night security guard, install an alarm system around the perimeter. Now, if you're like me, I was reading this, you know, a week or two ago to start my prep, and I'm thinking, come on, Jesus. Like, I get that some people are off, but just, like, relax. Is it really that big of a deal? Well, remember, end of the Sermon on the Mount, three warnings. What was the one right before this? It was about two roads or paths that lead to two very different destinations. And remember, what are they? One destination is life. The other destination is what? Destruction. And so in context, if you think about it, a prophet is a guide to help you and I navigate the journey of life. A true prophet is a cartographer. Here's a map. the good life, to human flourishing, to what Jesus called the kingdom, what Jesus called the life that is truly life, a false prophet could, in theory, point you down the wrong path, and before you know it, a decade goes by, two, three, four, and you end up at the wrong destination, and you collapse in on yourself. And for Jesus, here's the danger. The danger is that false prophets aren't nearly as easy to spot as our fundamentalist friends would have us believe. Hence, Jesus' next metaphor. Second half of 15, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now, this metaphor of a sheep in uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing was common in Jesus' day. It actually predates Jesus, goes all the way back to Aesop's fables, hundreds of years beforehand. Sheep were the most common form of livestock in the first century, Mediterranean, kind of like, I don't know, cows in the Oregon countryside today, and wolves were the number one predator after human beings. To this day, a wolf, even in our language, even in English, thousands of years later on the other side of the world, a wolf is still a kind of figure of speech for somebody who's a predator, who's not safe, who is, has, is out for blood, who's after you, who is dangerous to be around. And a lamb, to this day, is code language for an innocent victim or somebody who's weak or defenseless or just naive or gullible. Jesus picks up on this language from the pop culture of his day to make the point that wolves, at least the smart ones, don't always look like wolves. Sometimes they look like sheep. In the same way, false prophets don't always look like false prophets, don't always look like a heretic or a Satanist or a whatever. Sometimes they look like other followers of Jesus. Meaning you can't take people at face value, especially those who claim to speak on behalf of God. The irony of a pastor saying that from stage is thick, and I'm well aware of it, all right? <laughs> now, this raises the question, how do you tell a true prophet from a false one? Well, Jesus has three tests, for lack of a better word, to run. Test one is the life test. Take a look at 16. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Again, rhetorical question, answer, no. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, fruit. but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, and Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers, (laughs) and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Fruit here is a metaphor for what comes out of your life. In our language, character. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off in some way or other. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character, who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. How good is that? Not charisma, but character. What are they like off stage, behind the scenes, when the mic isn't recording? Look at their marriage, their sexuality. Look at their family. Are their children following Jesus? I will never forget when Tammy over here was pregnant with our firstborn, who's now in middle school. How crazy is that? And I was so scared to have a kid because I was hearing horror stories of pastor's kids who are just the worst, you know? And so I went around to um, some older and wiser followers of Jesus and leaders in the kingdom and said, why is that? You would think that Ideally, the pastor would have, like, at least, like, median, hopefully, like, better kids than normal, or at least, like, medium, you know? And I was expecting to hear, well, it's the long, hard hours, it's the emotional whatever, and nobody said that. Every single leader I asked gave me the exact same answer. You know what it was? Hypocrisy. When dad or mom is one person on stage and another off stage, it is the ultimate turnoff. Wow. Who are they? And that doesn't mean that if a pastor's kids are not following Jesus. I'm not saying that. But that's one thing you look at. Look at how they steward money and sex and power. Are they humble or a selfie mogul? Are they in community or a lone ranger? Are they under the authority of a local church with all of its problems and issues and beauty? Or are they dechurched churched and rogue? Look at how they live. This is what Jesus means by fruit. As you can imagine, fruit was another well known trope in first century literature. It's an agrarian society. Grapes and figs were two of the most common crops, and thorns and thistles were two of the most common invasive species that farmers had to deal with. Jesus' point is living organisms produce fruit from their nature. Vines make grapes, fig trees make figs, not rocket science. Thorns and thistles make more thorns and thistles. In the same way, good people produce good fruit, not perfect fruit, but good fruit. Bad people, not so much. So test one is take a close look at their life or character. But all by itself, test one is not enough to spot a false prophet. For starters, Jesus doesn't define good. So it would be really easy to import our definition of good and evil into the text. After all, on page three of the Bible, and if you're new to Jesus, or you're just trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in a post-Christian society, this is key to wrap your head around. Genesis chapter three, the temptation, the fall of man in the language of theology. What is the temptation? At its root, the temptation is to redefine good and evil based on your own desires, and the voice in the back of your head personified by the serpent in that story, rather than to defer and put your trust in God and what he has said to be good and evil and life and death. That is the temptation underneath all of the other temptations, to redefine good and evil based on a combination of your desires and the voice that you hear in the back of your head, rather than to trust God and what he has said to be true or not true. Especially for us as Portlanders, this is really tricky because we, for the most part, define good as we would, we would say loving. But what we mean by loving, I think, for the most part, is nice and tolerant and happy. Is that, is, that, is that a fair assumption? Like I think when most people say, oh, we're all about love or he's so loving or she's so loving, what we mean is nice, tolerant and, you know, for the most part, kind of happy and not grumpy or whatever. So it would be really easy for us to import, again, our definition of good, nice, tolerant, happy, into the text here, and kind of like shrug it off and say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what they say. It doesn't matter what the theology is, if it's, you know, heterodox or even a little bit heretical. They're a good person. Again, they're nice, tolerant, and happy. What's the big deal? And just let it slide or even go with it. We need an anchor point for our definition of good and evil. Right, this is why our society is in crisis right now. We no longer have, if we ever did, I wasn't here 200 years ago, it's been a while, but we no longer have an anchor point for good or for evil, and so it's mob mentality, and the dogs are out for blood, because we now have different cultures, different worldviews with different definitions of good and evil. The right and the left is not just about politics, not just about money, it's about morality It's about two different, different definitions of what is moral, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is beautiful, what is true. We need an anchor point. And for us as apprentices of Jesus, that anchor point is Jesus himself, his teaching as set out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and interpreted through the writings of the New Testament, which leads us to test two, the teaching text. Take a look at 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Again, my boy Eugene, for the win. He's not my boy, but I have met him. I've been to his house in Montana. I've sat, he has no idea who I am, but I have sat on his deck. Um, (laughs) Knowing he has like a, you know, like at the pond, uh, like back in the day where they had like the little paddle boats. Is that what you call them, paddle boats, where you like pedal? You know, he has one of those. You will never read the message the same way again ever, right? Knowing the correct password, this is his paraphrase, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. Serious obedience, doing what my father wills, or in the language here of the NIV, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, pay close attention here, especially if you're new to the New Testament or new to the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, that phrase, the will of my Father who is in heaven, is code, it's stand-in language for Jesus' teaching. So, in Matthew's frame of reference, Jesus' teaching is the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is Jesus' teaching. Right? Jesus full on said, when you see me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father have one." He claimed to speak on behalf of God himself. They are one and the same. So for Jesus, listen carefully, the life test isn't enough. It's not enough for somebody to be a good person and definitely not enough for them to use Christian language or even to pray out loud, look really carefully at the content of what it is they are teaching. I can't help but think of Paul's warning to Timothy, one spiritual leader to another in context. This is all about false prophets and false teachers. And he writes this for Timothy, who's not a false prophet watch your life and doctrine closely. That word doctrine is a Greek word, can also be translated teaching, your content, closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers, life and teaching, teaching and life. And notice what's at stake, salvation itself. So a great diagnostic question to ask when you have the podcast in your ear or you're reading the book or you're listening to me or whoever it is, and you're thinking, is this person on or off or somewhere in between? A great diagnostic question is this, is this person's teaching moving my heart to obey Jesus' teachings? Do they make me want to do the will of the Father as laid out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Or do they make me doubt or play loose and free with interpretation or explain things away in order to kind of justify me doing what I want? That's the key. This is where we have to be rooted, not only in the Bible, but especially in the four Gospels. We have to be, if you've read the book of Acts, like the Bereans who, quote, received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That was for Paul. Ten times more for yours truly, and 20 times more for Gerald, who's not here, so I can say that, right? You know? I've said this before, but I figure on any given teaching... Let's, let's go with optimism. Let's say 90% of what I say up here is right. Now the number might be lower, but let's just, for my own ego, stroke it, all right? Go with this. Hypothetical scenario. 90-ish percent of what I say is right, it's in line with Jesus, the writings of the New Testament, Orthodox, historic faith. 10% of it is going to be off. Hopefully not like heretical off, but off or just you know, not the right balance or not well said. The problem is I don't know which 10% is off. It's not like I'm sitting there writing my teaching on Wednesday morning and think, where should I put the heresy part? I'll put that in part three, you know? I don't know. Like, before God, I'm doing my best up here, but I am a human being with a mind, we'll talk more about this later, with a mind that is fallen and with a mind that has been filled with the Holy Spirit. Both are true of me. And so you have to test everything that I say, everything that Gerald has to say, everything that your elders have to say, everything that anybody has to say up against the litmus test that is scripture, and in particular, the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. We have to be so well-versed in scripture and so immersed in the mind and imagination of Jesus and his way of life, that when somebody is off, we can spot it a mile away. Not because we went to seminary, not because we spend four hours a day in the Greek, that's great, but just because we are men and women who follow Jesus, and he is our rabbi, he is our teacher, and we hang on his every word. And so when somebody says something that's off, we can say, well, you know, I. Actually, Jesus says this. Actually, Jesus says this. Actually, Jesus says this. I think of Matt, who's in my community. He's not here tonight because he's homesick, but he has been reading through the entire Sermon on the Mount every single day this year. Reading three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, every single day. And you will not pull the wool over that man's eyes. But a lot of us get confused, listen, because false prophets... Jesus is so spot on here. Use Christian-y language. Lord, Lord. Right, that's very Christian-y language for people that are not followers of Jesus. I was reading Rosaria Butterfield this week and was struck by this paragraph about those who, quote, reinvent a Christianity that fits nicely on the coexist bumper sticker, avoiding the disgrace and shame of the cross from a respectable religion that bows to the idols of our day. Consumerism? and sexual autonomy. This manipulation strategy relies on using biblical words in anti-biblical ways. It shares with biblical Christianity the same vocabulary, but not the same dictionary. This is really insightful. You see this a lot, kind of all over our city, but you see this a lot in the publishing industry, a lot with progressive Christian writers, conservative Christian writers as well, or ex kind of Christian writers on the left or on the right. The dark underbelly, I know just a little bit about this from writing, the dark underbelly of the publishing industry is that Christians read way more than non-Christians. Did you know that? So small percentage of the population, we make up a disproportionate amount of the publishing industry. Christians just read. There is a long-standing tradition of the life of the mind in the way of Jesus. So Christians just read like crazy, which means there is money to be made off of you. So, progressive Christians, and I'm sure the conservative Christians do this too, and former Christians will often use Christian-y language or even evangelical language, but they import new meanings into words. So, I think of our fellow Oregonian, Marcus Borg, a brilliant guy, and I've read a lot of his stuff on the historical side of the Gospels, but he is, his theology is way outside the boundary of orthodox faith, and like his, he has this famous line, the resurrection doesn't have to be real for it to be true. And he has a whole book on resurrection. He doesn't believe that Jesus came back from the dead. Resurrection, and he he interprets that to mean like, well, you know, the, the spirit of Jesus is with us. He doesn't mean like the Holy Spirit. He means like, you know, justice and love and tolerance is with us. And so that's resurrection. I'm all for justice and love. That's not what resurrection means. Resurrection means your body coming back from the dead. To say Jesus rose from the grave is not to say hope is alive in the universe. It's to say Jesus is back from the dead, right? So you see it. He takes the same word, but he puts a new meaning on it. He's uh, so slippery, and Christians buy it by the hundreds of thousands. And it's not just people like him. It's, I see this all the time. Jesus is saying, don't fall for the sales pitch, don't be naive, don't let people make money off of you who are not even practicing the way of Jesus anymore but they know you will buy a book or whatever they write. And you see this by the way on the conservative side as well. I just beat up on the right a lot less because we're an uber progressive city and there are like three conservatives in the room. <clears throat> one of the tra- on a serious note, one of the tragedies of the American church, and even though we're in such a progressive city because of the election cycle and everything of the last couple of years, we're all exposed to that conservative side of the church One of the tragedies I think of the church in America is that we have no category for conservative heretic. So there are all sorts of liberal heretics out there. Um, At least our fundamentalist friends would have us believe and I think they're right. But where are all the conservative heretics? Because they exist true. And we forget that Jesus spent most of his time tangling not with the liberals of the day but with the conservatives of the day. The Pharisees were far more conservative than anybody in this room. And that's who Jesus was on about all the time. I love this from Dr. Glenn Stassen. This is an ethicist out of Fuller Seminary, one of my all-time favorite writings on the Sermon on the Mount. He wrote this before the last election cycle, but man, is it prophetic. All these teachings, in context here, Matthew, mean that we should beware of those who claim to be Christian spokespersons, but whose words tell us to give our loyalty to the ruling powers. They deceive us, We are to beware of those who claim to speak truth but whose words try to persuade us to serve greed, war, and ethnic division. Beware of those who put before us a corporate brand or a national flag or a racial loyalty or the almighty dollar or an image of our nation that stands for goodness against another nation that stands for evil and inflames us to make war and arouses our passions to serve that image rather than to serve God who is revealed in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. My point is, from the right or from the left, don't fall for the con of Christian y language. Don't let them play you. Jesus y language, from the right or from the left, does not equal Jesus y teaching. All right, almost there. Are we still alive? Now that I've offended everybody on both sides of the socio-political, I'm Anabaptist, I don't vote, all right? Okay, it's like my cop-out for everything. Test one, the life test. Test two, the teaching test. Test three, take a look at 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, there's that Christian language again, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. Now, if this does not make you a scotch uncomfortable, you're not reading your Bible well, all right? Now, first off, just to clarify, I had some questions about this after the morning. Jesus is not teaching here on, like, salvation and who's in and who's out at the end of the age. He's teaching on false prophets who claim to be followers of Jesus, okay? So this isn't, don't ask, like, but what about the, like, Buddhist 400 years before Christ who doesn't know the name of Jesus? That's not what he's teaching on. He's teaching on somebody who claims to speak on behalf of Jesus, but is not actually in relationship with Jesus. Still, I can't get over how fascinating this is. Apparently, for Jesus, a good life and good teaching still are not enough. He sets the bar even higher. There's one last thing, and it's the most important thing. One last test. Does the prophet have a I don't know how to phrase it. In America, we say a personal relationship with. A genuine, authentic, no PR, no spin relationship with Jesus. Do they, quote, know Jesus? That word, I never knew you, is gnosko in Greek. And it's the Greek word not for head knowledge, but for relational knowledge. It's not I know that two plus two equals four. It's I know Tammy. In fact, it's used as an idiom in both Hebrew, the equivalent in Hebrew and in Greek, for intimacy between a man and a woman. In Genesis 4, you read that Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they used that same word, gnosko. And then Jesus talks here about that day. Did you catch that phrase, that day? What day is Jesus talking about? That's first century verbiage for um, first century Hebrews called a Yom Yahweh in Hebrew, or the day of the Lord in English. We would say judgment day, the day, the cataclysmic and cosmic day, when finally at last, like a thunderclap, the world is put to rights. On that day, all of our secrets will be laid bare. There will be no more spin, no more image curation on social media, no more filters, no more hush money, no more lawsuits, no more payoffs, no more secrets, no more whispering in the hallways, no more questions. Everything will be out in the open and dealt with once and for all for the God, for the judge of the universe. Will the judge of the universe not do right? And then and only then we will know once and for all if somebody was a true or a false prophet. By the ultimate test, not just life on the outside and teaching, but by whether or not they were grounded in a relationship or dare I say intimacy with Jesus himself. This last one just does something to my heart. And we've all heard, if you're anything like me, I am sick and tired of hearing stories about spiritual leaders from the church or outside of the church who implode, who you find out behind the scenes. There was just another one two weeks ago and it's just gut-wrenching, just gut-wrenching. I remember just chatting to a a buddy of mine, dear friend who's a worship leader who was offered a job at one of the biggest churches in America. credible, like kind of chance of a lifetime, just come, write your own ticket, kind of dream job, right? He just said something about it just felt off. Everything on paper was dream job. Something about it felt off. Two years later, it came out. This pastor had been not only having affairs, his secretary had been giving him very specific kind of sexual favors right before he would come up on stage to preach. I I can't even, when I found that out, I just wanted to quit my job. I, I can't even fathom that. And for Jesus, it's not just like that story that we hear all too often. For Jesus, there are people not only that have the appearance of a good life on the outside and who are like teaching is spot on. There's no heresy, no goofy stuff. There are actually men and women who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to prophesy, to cast out demons, and to work miracles who don't actually know Jesus. And you see examples of this all through the library of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But here's the tricky thing about test three. Can we test for this? What do you think? I I won't make fun of you if you give the wrong answer, I promise. No, we can't test for this. You can't. Um, You can guess. You can intuit, you can pray, you can discern. Do you ever like have a sense about somebody? You're like, I don't know what it is, but just something is off about that person. Do you ever have that? Yeah. And uh, depending on how prophetic you are, how wise you are, how mature you are, you may or may not be right. But at the end of the day, you don't know this side of judgment day. Um, this, this is like a beautiful thing. This is where Jesus in Matthew is, especially here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's put forth like a sage, like a wisdom teacher. So think of the wisdom sayings in Proverbs and the idea of paradox, think of like, you know, the famous one, um, don't answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be like him. Next proverb, answer a fool according to his folly. You know that one? You're like, wait a minute, do I answer the fool according to his folly or not answer the fool according to his folly? Yes. You get it? That's, the, that's what Jesus is saying here. This is brilliant, and it's burning. He's saying, test. Like, watch out. Here's a test to run. Look at so-and-so's life. Here's another test. Look at so-and-so's teaching. Here's another one. Look at so-and-so's relationship with Jesus. Oh, but you can't actually test, and you don't actually know, and they could do all of the first two and still be wrong. Wait, so a test or don't test? Yes. In this hypothetical scenario that is all too real, listen, the deceivers themselves are deceived. They are genuinely shocked that they are not in relationship with Jesus. And it's crystal clear they're nowhere close because when called out by Jesus, do they repent? No, what do they do? They start to list off a litany of all the things they have done in the name of Jesus and under Christian auspices. Imagine if Jesus called you out, and would you say, but Jesus, I've done this, and I've done that, and it's all right there, like you bring it right to mind. You have this running list of all the things you've done in Jesus. It just shows how far they are from relationship with Jesus. Hence the warning, beware of the pseudo-prophets, the kind of, sort of, wannabe pastors and bloggers and writers and podcasters and teachers and people. Beware, watch out, set a guard. Now, what in the world are we to do with this? How do we ever walk out of here feeling good? Which is really what it's all about, right? (laughs) What is it that Jesus has for Bridgetown Church on this rainy spring day? I've been wrestling with this for weeks, and this is one of the reasons that we teach through um, the scriptures kind of line by line, because I would never pick this to teach on ever in a million years. Basically, none of you trust me now, right? What is it that Jesus has? Well, here's my best shot before we wrap up. I don't think Jesus is trying to create a community of self-appointed watchdogs or foster, like, a spirit of suspicion at our church where every spiritual leader is guilty until proven innocent and we play the secret police and, you know, hack Gerald's email and, like, steal a journal out of my office and how often does he mention the name Jesus in his journal or interrogate Tammy with what's John Mark's spiritual disciplines life like or whatever or or just sit back with arms crossed I know it everybody's corrupt power all of that with the spirit of cynicism that is all too prevalent in our city we need less of that not more notice and I love this Jesus does not say what we are to do with the false prophets other than just watch out for them I love that. Like, he doesn't, you don't need to start a hashtag. Like, just don't. We have plenty. Please. Um, you don't need to buy a bullhorn and stand outside a Rob Bell tour. You don't need to start a blog and critique every single liturgist podcast or go on Twitter and slam anybody that is progressive or that is conservative or that voted or that did not vote or whatever it is. And there might be a time and there might be a place for that. Um, there are some of the role of an elder in a local church, sure, to pastor and watch out for the flock. But as a general rule, he does not say any of that. He just says, watch out. Don't let them dupe you. Keep your eyes open. Stay awake. So much of spirituality, so much of the way of Jesus is about watchfulness and wakefulness to the reality of the kingdom all around you. So I don't think he's trying to create watchdogs. I do think he's trying to create a community that is watchful, that is made up of smart, thinking people who are rooted in the Scriptures, who anchor a vision of theology and morality and human flourishing in the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth and the writings of the New Testament, of people that are not easily duped, that don't waste money to support somebody not in need of it. False prophet, and I think this is a warning that we need to heed. False prophets were a constant threat in Jesus' day, Um, After all, people read Deuteronomy. If you've read Deuteronomy 13, there was a prophecy from Moses that one day a prophet would arise to usher in the kingdom of God. And some people thought that was one and the same with the Messiah. Others thought it was a second Messiah-like figure. Either way, first century Jews were on pins and needles waiting for a prophet to come. That's why John the Baptist was so popular. That's why Jesus, a few months later, was so popular as well. He was a rabbi, but he was more than he was a teacher, a sage, sure, but he was more than all of that. He was a prophet. And people flocked to him by the thousands. Could he be the one? And many more false prophets came after Jesus of Nazareth. Just a few decades later, a false prophet by the name of Bar Kokhba came, who claimed to speak on behalf of God, claimed he was a prophet, claimed he had the voice, the ear of God, claimed he was the Messiah, and he mustered an army to go in rebellion against the empire. And guess what? They lost. And Jerusalem was destroyed. And the temple, the house that we'll read about in next week's text, was torn down to the ground in a mighty flood. And Israel wasn't a nation for upwards of two millennia because they did not heed Jesus' warning. They did not follow the true prophet and his way of nonviolent self-sacrifice, but a false prophet and the way of revolutionary war. And false prophets were not just a problem in the ancient world and the early church. They are in the modern world and here at Bridgetown as well. False prophets are still around. Again, we don't call them false prophets. We call them by all sorts of other names. And most of us just don't even want just, Talk about it. It just is so not cool in our city of tolerance and an open mind and what you think there's truth. Like it's just so not how we are. Maybe because we're embarrassed by conservative Christianity and the heretic hunters or the culture wars and the way to beat our faith into a shape that few of us even recognize anymore, at least online. Maybe because we live just in this post-enlightenment world and in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, not from Christians, from like sociologists and psychologists, that we are not nearly as rational as we think we are. Our vision is not 2020. There's so much science behind this. In the language of Christian theology, our minds are fallen, not just our bodies. Our minds have been corrupted by sin. We don't just believe based on the evidence. We have data, all of us have data from science, from religion, from history, from the humanities, from experience, we have to interpret that data based on our working hypothesis of what life is about, based on our own bias, based on our own wants and needs. The reality is we want some things to be true and we don't want other things to be true. Or is that's right? Thank you. We're not nearly my point is for all sorts of reasons, we don't want to talk about this. And so what happens? We get duped by manipulations of those who at best are on a path that does not lead to life. Let's heed Jesus' warning. And one last thing, just to (coughs) excuse me, just to end. Other thing I've been thinking about, man, in a world, in a globalized world, in a city that's left its anchor point. Man, the need for luminaries is more acute now than ever before. And by that, I don't mean a PhD or a brilliant, you know, I just mean people that are a living signpost to reality, to God, to what our culture calls the good life, to what Jesus called the way of the kingdom. Man, what if we were to not just beware of false prophets, what if we were to become true prophets? Truth tellers to our family, to our friends, to the three people in our startup, to the fellow barista, to the person we cycle next to over the Hawthorne Bridge every Thursday morning. What if, what if we were to become prophets? I can't help but wonder if we could reverse engineer, if Jesus' like downward spiral was you know bad fruit from bad theology from no relationship with Jesus. I can't help but wonder, what if we could reverse engineer that from relationship to Jesus? where we live in the reality of Jesus all day long, what Brother Lawrence called the practice of the presence of God, what Jesus himself called abiding. We slow down, we anchor our mind and even our body in the reality of God and we live out of that pocket all day long. And what if out of that, We were to devote our life to obedience to the teachings of Jesus, to doing the Father's will, not our own will, not our mixed bag of desires, good, bad, and ugly, but to doing the Father's will. And what if out of that we were to bear fruit, a good life, men and women transformed out of relationship to become the luminaries that our city so desperately needs. Let's stand and pray.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for this episode goes to Bryce from Austin, Texas, Brett from Mattoon, Illinois, Blake from Birmingham, Alabama, Gregory from Boise, Idaho, and Jennifer from Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.